You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like Yahweh, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know Yahweh. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of Yahweh, for the men treated the offering of Yahweh with contempt. Samuel was ministering before Yahweh, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May Yahweh give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of Yahweh. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, Yahweh visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of Yahweh. Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of Yahweh spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of Yahweh to put them to death. 
Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with Yahweh and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever, but now Yahweh declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever, the only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar, shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 720 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, September 24th, 2023. And that was a reading of 1 Samuel chapter 2. And there's almost a metal feel to this chapter where Hannah is this depressed woman in chapter 1. And she's being tormented and she's being harassed and she's being picked at and she's being put down and she's being mocked and derided and taunted all the time to the point where she just doesn't even have an appetite anymore. She doesn't even want to eat anymore. And her husband, Elkanah, for his part, not super helpful, not as helpful as he could have been. You get a sense of how bad this dynamic was in their home perhaps with Hannah's prayer in chapter two here, which makes up, at least by volume of scrolling, somewhere between a third and half of the chapter. Hannah's prayer talks about her enemies. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that her enemies are limited to Peninnah, her rival wife, the other wife of 
Elkanah, who was giving her such a hard time with regards to her not having any children. But in the context, it certainly seems as though she counted this other woman as an enemy. Not friendly, right? Not the best of buds. They were rivals, and the rivalry, the jealousy was so bad that the harassment just did not stop. It did not let up, and it kept on coming in a way that was very demoralizing. It was very discouraging, even to the point of not even wanting to eat for Hannah. And so who is it that delivered her from that situation? It was God. It was God who remembered her. She went and prayed to God directly, asking for a child, because a child would put a stop to that. If that's all Peninnah has to go on, and she doesn't have direct evidence of bad character on Hannah's part, bad motives, a bad heart, a bad orientation towards God, well then, if Hannah could just have a child, that would not be something that Peninnah had to go on and had to pick at. And so what does God do? God hears Hannah's prayer and answers her prayer by giving her one son. But then also in due time, God gives Hannah more sons, more sons still, plus also some daughters. It says that she had three sons and two daughters more in addition to Samuel. So that is to say, at the end of her story, at least as far as verse 21 is concerned in chapter two, she has had six children. She's had four sons, two daughters. But this Samuel, her first son with Elkanah, this Samuel will be very important to the larger story. He is one to watch, and he's the only one named. The name of the other sons, the other two children, the daughters, not mentioned, not listed here, but Samuel will be important. Samuel will be significant. And one thing that I find curious is something that I talked about in our last episode, which is that there's no indication really, except what we would read into the text or maybe assume, there's no indication that Samuel is a Levite. Samuel being descended from Elkanah, Elkanah being described as an Ephrathite, it would strongly imply, strongly suggest, a lot of people have taken it to mean that he was of the tribe of Ephraim. But another possible explanation is that the Ephrathites were some blend of descendants of Ephraim and descendants of Judah. It's not entirely clear, but what is more clear is that there's no indication that Samuel is a Levite. On the other hand, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are Levites, and that makes how they've been engaging in both active and passive ways, treating with contempt this privilege, this great honor, and this opportunity to honor God instead honoring themselves, that is a big problem for God. So God sends a man of God to Eli. That's what verse 27 says. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says Yahweh. And what follows is pretty metal. (laughs) It's pretty intense stuff. This is not positive encouraging. This is in fact very negative and foreboding. Your sons are going to die by the sword on the same day. That's how serious this is. You'll know that this prophecy against you and your household 
has come true when both of your sons die on the same day. And oh, by the way, as if that weren't enough, all of your descendants, all of the men in your line will die premature deaths. That's the consequence. That's the punishment for having treated with contempt or in the case of Eli, since it doesn't appear as though he himself necessarily, at least not as egregiously as his sons, treated the priesthood with contempt. He nevertheless didn't do sufficient work to put a stop to or curb or correct or discipline his sons as they were treating with contempt the priesthood. So what are these guys doing? What are these two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, doing? They come and they take the choicest meats and they they demand, right? They send a go-between. They send someone, a servant, a gopher, an errand boy, but probably a man, probably a man who's a bit rough, who actually can make it believable when he says, I'll take it by force. If you don't give me what I'm demanding of you, I'll take it by force. So this is a thug, Right. You have two priests who are crooked and corrupt, self-serving, sending a thug, probably bigger, meaner, uglier than the typical man, to go and demand of Israelites who come to obediently offer sacrifices to God, hey, want a pound of flesh for the priests. So in that case, who's being honored? Is God being honored or are these priests being honored? Insofar as all Israel is having this happen and all Israel sees that this is happening and all Israel is experiencing this or else observing others as they experience this, the effect is very corrosive on the morale and the spirituality of Israel. And Eli sees that this is happening. He knows that this is happening. And what does he do? He asks a question about it. He rebukes his sons, but this is not sufficient. This is not enough. Eli was very old. So how long had this been going on? He waits until late, late, late in life to finally get fed up with it and do something about it. He was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Oh, by the way, why didn't he deal with it? Why didn't he address it the very first time that he heard about it? You hear one report, and even if you're not sure if it's true, you find out, particularly if these are your sons This is your household. This couldn't be any more your responsibility to address, Eli. But what does he do? He says to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Which is to say, Eli recognizes and calls this appropriately evil that his sons are laying with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Absolutely shameless. Not just shameless that they would do it, but that it's commonly known as so known that it's not a secret. Eli keeps hearing about it. They do this routinely. They do this all the time. They are womanizers and everybody knows it. Why do you do such things? No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of Yahweh spreading abroad. So that is to say their corruption, their attitude negatively affects any good thing you would say about them. You can't say anything good about what they're doing because this attitude affects everything that would be otherwise good, perhaps, but they regard nothing as sacred, and they're corrupt, and they're evil, and God sees it, and God knows, and God himself is going to judge it. Eli, if he really loved his sons, would have mediated 
And by that, I mean he would have headed off this trouble before it got to this point. He would have put a stop to these things. He would have disciplined and corrected these things early on. And he would have followed through and he would have stuck with it and made sure that the discipline and the correction and the instruction stuck as much as anything to protect his sons from the fate that is headed their way. They're on a collision course with God and the best he can do is in his very old age, ask questions. But he's right. I mean, it's too little, it's too late, but he's right. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. If someone sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? And the answer to that we know as Christians is God himself can intercede. God the Son, that's the whole reason why Christ was born to Mary and Joseph, lived a sinless life in obedience to the Father, loving righteousness, teaching only what was good and true, being our atoning sacrifice. That was God the Son in obedience to the Father, mediating for us as we had all sinned against God. But in this case, there is no mediation for Hophni and Phinehas. All they get is judgment. And if it seems as though it's a long time coming, that in no ways means that it's less sure or that God is being unclear. Out of mercy towards even Hophni and Phinehas and everybody else who would observe that this is how patient God is, they have time, they have all the time that they would need to repent and turn away and be convicted and atone for their sins by other means, by other avenues that had been made available. So they're without excuse. They have zero excuse. They knew better. In fact, their father corrected them. In the text here, there's no indication that they respond. So maybe they did, or maybe they didn't say anything, and they just waited until their father was done speaking, and they said, okay, can I go now? Because it's the end, right? All the talking is done by Eli, and what's the call to action, and what's their response? There's apparently no response. And yet it says, they would not listen to the voice of their father. So they're just holding in contempt everything that he's telling to them. But it says here, it was the will of Yahweh to put them to death. Okay, so you guys don't want to be a good example. An example of holiness and reverence and sobriety, righteousness for all the people of Israel as you minister before me. I'll make you a horrible warning then. Have it your own way. I can use that, God says. And he does. There's a hardness of heart here, and very similar to how God uses the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, God uses the hardness of Hophni and Phinehas's heart to make an example of them, to provide a illustration. And yet, curious too, because the name of this book is Samuel, First Samuel, we see here, tucked in the middle of the whole narrative, Hannah's prayer, and also the man of God coming to Eli as distinct from Eli, oh, by the way, he's a priest, but apparently not so much a man of God. These are priests by birth versus priests by calling. Tucked between Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving and praise to God, recognition of God's justice, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, and this prophecy against Eli and his sons. You have Verses 18 to 20, Samuel was ministering before Yahweh, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And just pause right there. That couple of verses is so sweet and it's very precious. And Hannah, again, comes out of this whole situation in an exemplary fashion. She correctly credits God when her prayer is answered 
And she goes to God in the first place with the prayer because she believes that God will answer, does answer prayers. But then there's this touching little detail about how she would make a little robe and take it to him each year. And I want you to think about all of the unfortunate things that we might observe right now. Let's say politically in civil government and politically in a lot of what passes for the government of American mainstream evangelical Christianity. There are a lot of reasons to be sad, to be frustrated, to be depressed, to be vexed, to be anxious, and to weep and mourn. But on the other hand, if all we had to go on was the frailty of mankind, the sinfulness of mankind, the faithlessness of mankind, there would be no hope. The whole reason why we do not mourn as those who have no hope is because we believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe that that in Christ happens for those who are in Christ. It happens that on the last day we'll be raised to life eternal. But then also too, we believe in the capacity of God, the willingness of God, the character of God, the promises of God to make alive again dry bones in the desert, to make of a man and his wife who were old and past, well past childbearing years, a great nation and a great people, a people that was no people being called by God. And yes, even to be patient with those who are flagrantly, unapologetically, stubbornly, willfully wicked, even to be patient with those, how much more so those who are grieved by their sin and desperately longing for sanctification, justification, atonement, forgiveness from God. Here with Hannah going up every year and bringing the little robe that she makes for Samuel, you have a glimmer of hope. Not that Samuel is the object of faith, but that God, that same God who is able to allow Hannah, who was barren, to conceive, that same God is able to put to service this little boy, God himself instructing and making wise and blessing and putting to good use this little boy is something that clearly Hannah believes and it's important to her. And you have to think, and I have some frame of reference here, not because I sew, but because my wife does, you have to believe, you have to understand when a woman is sitting there with a sewing machine in our day, I don't suppose Hannah had a sewing machine like my wife has sewing machines, but if she was sitting there with needles and thread and she was sewing these little robes, all the while she was sewing and putting together these robes for Samuel, the next size up and the next size up year after year, she was meditating on how God had answered her prayer as simple as I want to have a child. And if God could answer that, prayer. What else was she praying for Samuel, interceding on his behalf as she sat there making robes for him year after year? She's probably working on that robe to remind herself that God answered her prayer. She's probably working on that robe as something of an unspoken reminder to her rival that God answered Hannah's prayer, as something of a reminder to her husband Elkanah that God answered her prayer. But then The robe doesn't need to be 
all the evidence that there is. Every time they go to Shiloh, there's Samuel. There's the reminder. See, he's still here. It wasn't a dream. But then also, verse 21, Yahweh visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of Yahweh. So there's a tithe here of the firstborn son. But there's also an increase. Yahweh visited Hannah, which is to say there's a presence of God with Hannah, and there's a presence of God with Samuel, and Hannah has three more sons and two daughters, and those two serve as encouragement to her, as affirmation, validation after a fashion, and as a corrective to Peninnah. You can humble yourself like Hannah does, or you can be humiliated If you were staking all of your value and worth and satisfaction in life on tormenting this woman, all God has to do to humiliate you is bless her, and so he does. And there's a corrective, but the focus is not on the corrective. The focus is on the blessing for faith. By grace through faith, God pours out blessings. As we're going to find, as we continue on, this origin story for Samuel is a pretty big deal. It really is. A number of things are expressed and drawn out and shown and demonstrated about the character of God in this narrative about Samuel. And Samuel is a man in the Old Testament we don't spend nearly enough time talking about or thinking about. Moses gets a lot of attention. and Yeah, that's right. And that's fair. Joshua, super cool guy. Yes, there's some interesting judges, shall we say. Samson gets plenty of attention with the whole jawbone of an ass slaying a thousand Philistines. The affair with Delilah is very salacious, yes, but Samuel sometimes perhaps gets passed over without sufficient attention because David comes after. Saul comes after and David comes after. And the conflict between Saul and David is pretty captivating, pretty dramatic. But Samuel though, guys, Samuel, watch for Samuel and don't miss some of the very quiet, subtle clues about God's character, which are left for us like breadcrumbs in even just this as an origin story. Remember, like with the book of Ruth, this being told to us in scripture and all scripture being breathed out by God All scripture being breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. That means that this being breathed out by God is in the biblical text because God wants us to know these things about himself and about who we are. We come to understand better God. We get theology this way in narrative form, learn something about people in relation to other people. And that's not to be downplayed because... We have two commands that sum up all the law and the prophets. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second, which is like it, Jesus says, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. How do you love your neighbor as you love yourself if you don't understand anything of human nature? If you don't observe anything about human nature? If you don't reflect on why people do what they do and to what end? Reading these very human stories about Hannah her husband, her rival, Eli, his sons, 
And yes, all of this being the lead up to, the context, the origin story for a certain boy named Samuel who becomes a man named Samuel. This gives us a reliable guide to the human condition and to how to love your neighbor as you love yourself. How to be wise as serpents in some cases and harmless as doves. There's no question about it. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are serpents. They are snakes in the grass. They are a foreshadowing of the type Jesus confronts and provokes in public in the gospel accounts. Don't assume that just because someone is in a position of authority, that means that everything they do is sanctioned by God. Don't suppose that just because they do what they do, the corrupt things that they do, the wicked things that they do, the malicious things that they do, the irreverent things that they do. Don't assume that God is just like, oh, fine. Okay. That's one way to live your life. No. In due season, in the proper time, God will do justice. If there is not a turning, if there is not repentance, if there is not atonement in Christ, in due time, justice will be served. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. And yet on the flip side, if you're in something like the position that Eli's in, be warned. It is not something to shrug about. If there is accountability that is needed and you are in a position to provide that accountability and you don't, you're complicit. That is very clear from the way that Eli is addressed. Eli is the one the man of God comes to. The man of God does not come to Eli's sons, but Eli is to know this happened on his watch and God is not pleased. He's been warned. He knew better. He himself also treated these things with a certain flippancy, but his sin was passivity. The sins of his sons were active. The sins of Eli were passive. God will not be mocked either way. These men reap what they sow. Moving on, moving on from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let's talk a little bit about a gem of a website that was shared with me at our most recent Ecclesia Forum on September 10th of this year by my neighbor two houses down, Monica Chavez. Thank you, Monica, for inviting your friend and for sharing with me so that I can share with others this resource, allsides.com. Allsides.com bills itself as unbiased, balanced news. But really, from what I've seen so far, the biggest benefit here is not that this is a news organization that is directly sending out journalists and reporters and they have so many writers. Maybe they do have some writers. Maybe they do have some journalists. I haven't looked that deeply into it. I've mostly been benefiting from their main landing page where they aggregate news, but they don't just aggregate news. They also are giving you various stories, leading headlines, main issues that are being reported on by a lot of different outlets across the political spectrum in the U.S. and around the world, but especially in the U.S. And they classify these news items as being either centrist or from the left or from the right. So as you may have noticed, if you pay any attention to the news at all, 
various news organizations lean either slightly to the left or they lean hard to the left or they lean slightly to the right or they lean hard to the right. And who can tell, right? If all of the news sources have shifted to the left, what we now consider the right is relative, what we now consider to be plausibly slightly to the left or what we consider to be centrist is relative, right? It's relative, the general morality and mindset of the people or the perception of the general mindset and morality of the people. But nevertheless, there's still value in that much to see, okay, here from the right is what's being said about this story. Here from the left is what's being said about this story. Here from the center, a more balanced presentation is what's being said about this story. And I'll give you an example. Here's the top story on allsides.com and actually a great example of the kind of a story you would want to see, even just the headlines for from the right, Fox News Online categorized as hard right, which I would not consider Fox News to be hard right, but more about that in a minute. Dallas mayor leaves Democratic Party, switches to GOP. American cities need Republicans. That's a quote from this mayor, Eric Johnson, who announced Friday he is switching his party affiliation to Republican. Republicans need American cities. American cities need Republicans. That's what he says. Fox News, their headline is, Dallas mayor leaves Democratic Party, switches to GOP. American cities need Republicans. Well, that's a pretty fair summation of what is happening, right? Right. On the right. What about from the left? What does the left say? Here we have moderately left, center left, the Washington Post. Dallas mayor switches to GOP, making city the largest led by a Republican. And there's a little dig there. You know, that's why it's slightly to the left. There's a little dig where they can get one that Republicans don't have the cities. But then this mayor, Eric Johnson, Dallas mayor, is suggesting that as well. And so that's fair, right? That's fair to say that the cities typically vote Democrat and the rural areas typically vote Republican, predominantly vote Republican. How about from the center? What's the centrist headline here? From Newsweek, according to all sides, Dallas mayor flips to GOP, Cities need Republicans. And so it's much shorter, right? There's less baggage. There's less editorializing contained within the headline itself. There you go. That's how a centrist would present this. Just the facts, ma'am. Like Sergeant Friday from Dragnet, Dallas mayor flips to GOP. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Well, it's a thing. (laughs) That's what the centrist will say. It's a thing. Really all depends on what effectively that change is going to translate into what practically changes if the mayor now joins the Republican Party and caucuses with the Republicans and, more importantly, I think, throws his weight behind arguing, as somebody who has been a Democrat, that the Democrat approach to governance is broken. The Democratic parties, not democracy, but the Democratic Party, so-called, has a broken and self-serving approach to governance that is not serving the American people particularly well. That's what it is. And insofar as the left, those outlets that are still on the left, those journalists that are still on the left, who still believe in the Democratic Party and they still like 
the agenda of the Democratic Party and they make excuses for or they just don't even look at, they won't even pay attention to. They passively acquiesce to all of the downsides and they say, well, that's just the cost of doing business. You got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. They want to do damage control and downplay how much of an indictment this is on their way of making decisions together, which is all politics is. But I say all this, I bring all this to your attention because it's good for us to know what's going on in our country, in our state, in our city, in our county. It's good for us to know these things. You can go too far. You can become obsessive and stop minding your own affairs. That's not good. Don't do that. You can also bury your head in the sand and just do whatever seems right in your own eyes, like the book of Judges. But that's part of how we get to where we're at right now. If the news is so bleak and so ugly and so awful and so terrible, and you just wonder, man, what's wrong with people? If your answer is to check out, well, then that's also partly the answer to your own question. What's wrong with people? Well, they check out and they are self-serving and they're not caring sufficiently about what's true and what's good. And they become utilitarian and the ends justify the means. Any means can be justified depending on the ends, which will be enjoyed by the individual. But then that's how people become corrupt and cynical and passive. Yes, even passive when they don't even consider how God would send a man of God to them potentially for letting abuse and corruption carry on. See also 1 Samuel chapter 2. But do check out a website like this. Be careful, right? Be most careful about somebody who says, I am the neutral third party. I am the arbiter. I'll tell you what news you can trust. Be careful. If I start talking like that unequivocally, be careful. Insofar as I would make any claim to such, I hope that I am tempering and moderating that with due reverence for God and a recognition that I'm a finite creature. I'm fallible. I can be wrong. I don't know everything. I don't understand all mysteries, but if I want to love you guys well, I will share with you that this is a source that so far has been useful to me, even to just get a quick rundown of how are these stories being presented by all sides and how can the same story be covered with slightly different editorializing, even just in the headlines, even just in the headlines. If you can learn to be a discerning consumer of headlines, which is what most people are these days, they don't really read the article, they just read the headline and then they have a reaction either to blow it off or to get upset or to get excited Oh, wait a second. Maybe you shouldn't be so excited. There's more to the story. Hey, wait, maybe you shouldn't be so upset. There's more to the story. Hey, wait a second. Maybe you shouldn't blow it off because this pertains to your business. A source like this can be useful in helping to inform how you manage your affairs, not instead of you managing your affairs, but there you go. Do with that what you will and be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, as Jesus says. But moving on, let's consider an essay by J.V. Fesco, speaking of the Chavez's, thank you to J.P. Chavez for having sent this one to me about the priesthood of all believers. I believe it was J.P. Chavez who sent this to me. If it wasn't him, he would have. So thank you for being the kind of person, J.P., who would send this kind of an essay to me. But this is J.V. Fesco over at the Gospel Coalition writing about the priesthood of all believers. What is that? It might be good for us to know in relation to the cautionary tale of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Starting off, definition. 
The doctrine of the priesthood of all believers states that all believers in Christ share in his priestly status. Therefore, there is no special class of people who mediate the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers, and all believers have the right and authority to read, interpret, and apply the teachings of Scripture. There's the definition. Okay? Big idea. You do not not (laughs) need a mediator other than Christ between you and God. You don't need a priest who gives you access, grants access, or bars your path to God, your being able to pray to God directly. See also Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She does not need to take her request to Eli and have Eli take the request to God, and then Eli comes back to Hannah and says, yeah, he says no, or yes, right? The middleman is Christ between us and God. That's what the priesthood of all believers means for, in particular, Protestants. Now, speaking of, let's continue on with the essay to the summary, where Fesco writes, In contrast to the beliefs of the medieval church, the Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of all believers holds that there is no longer a priestly class of people within God's people, but that all believers share in Christ's priestly status by virtue of their union with Christ. Although there was a select group of priests in the Old Testament who mediated the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of God to the rest of Israel, Christ has come and fulfilled the priestly role through his life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, Christ was the final priestly mediator between God and his people, and Christians share in that role through him. This means that Christians are not dependent upon the priests within the church to interpret scripture for them or affect God's blessings of forgiveness for them. All Christians are equally priests through Christ and stand upon the same ground before the cross. This does not mean that we should do away with pastoral or ministerial authorities, while those authorities are a part of the way that God blesses his church with instruction in sound doctrine, those with churchly authority need the rest of the body just as much. Now, on this point, and we'll just pause for a moment before continuing on, appreciate how significant this is, how meaningful this is, how important it is to the way that we practically relate to each other. And think about Medieval history, if you know much about medieval history for Europe and for the Western Roman Empire and for the Roman Catholic Church, you'll know that there was quite a lot of politics involved in popes coming to be so important in the doctrine and practice of the church. Popes and councils and their authority being a mediator between the individual Christian, the individual churchgoer, the individual saint, and Christ, and God himself, this came to be a major lever, a major wedge, a major tool for exercising political power. So for instance, a king or an emperor might want to do a certain thing, and if he claimed to be a Christian, but the thing that he was doing was not approved of by the Pope, the Pope could say, if you do that thing, or because you have done that thing, and we regard this as sinful and wicked, we will withhold communion from you, 
and excommunicate you if you are not repentant. You must repent and restore to any whatever you have taken from them because this is wicked. This is a sinful thing. We told you not to do it. You are not blessed in doing it. You have sinned, and we will regard you as a heretic if you do not repent, if you do not turn away and stop it and apologize publicly. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, is that always such a bad thing? Is that always a bad idea? And speaking personally, I would say no. For instance, we have Democrats in the U.S. who are very vocally championing homosexuality, transgenderism, and abortion. And the teaching of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, but more importantly, the teaching of Scripture, the Word of God says all of that is abominable and sinful, and God hates it. And yet the Democrat politicians who claim to be Roman Catholics and good practicing Catholics don't let go of their strong encouragement and praise of and affirmation of and celebration of these wicked, abominable practices publicly, normalizing them, and in some sense, encouraging people to engage in them and actually reserving their strongest opposition for anybody who would say, this is bad. This is a bad thing to do. Don't do it. Don't live this way. Don't act that way. Do I personally have a problem with a priest saying, I'm going to withhold communion from this Democrat lawmaker who claims to be a Roman Catholic, say, for instance, the president of the United States, Joseph R. Biden, or former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, you don't get communion because you're in sin. No, I I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I think that's appropriate. I think it's appropriate to say, hey, you claim to be a Christian, and yet you champion this wickedness, this abominable practice over here, and this one over there, and this one over here. We do not recognize fruit in keeping with repentance in your life, and you are saying things directly opposite to what God says. No, you do not get communion. Repent, confess publicly that you have sinned, turn away from your sin, or you don't get communion. I think that's appropriate. Personally, I am in favor of that. And when that doesn't happen, it strikes me as of a piece with the attitude of Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2 passively endorsing and neglecting to do his duty, which is not to mediate between God and man, but rather to warn, like the man of God who comes to Eli, to warn and to prophesy judgment on unrepented of sin and wickedness. Now, on the flip side, right, here's where we get things a little bit messy. The other side of the coin, and we saw this quite a lot in the Middle Ages, in the medieval period, during the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, this was front and center, the dispute about the doctrine of the church, that subset of theology that has to do with what is the role of, the function of, the purpose of the church on earth and those who are in positions of authority in the church, how much authority do they have relative to the word of God? How do you know who mediates disputes there between the priests, so-called bishops, cardinals, popes, councils, and God's people. What happens if you get a corrupt priest, a corrupt bishop, a corrupt cardinal, a corrupt pope who has been bribed and who has bullied his way into the position, and now 
he is showing partiality towards political allies, and he's actually doing the dirty work of going after political enemies of his donors and his benefactors. What do you do in that case? What do you do? If excommunication will be threatened for anybody who steps out of line, but then you find that this is actually not predicated on anything in the biblical text, there's no biblical support at all for the judgment that's being handed down. This is arbitrary, and there's a lot of evidence that it's corrupt, and there's partiality that's being shown, and that's the whole reason this person is in this position of high office in the first place, because a member of their family or friends of the family knew that they could be relied on to hand down rulings and judgments which would favor certain interests. If the withholding of communion or if excommunication, declaring somebody a heretic, essentially declaring open season on their kingship, their territory, for all other true Catholics, if that comes to be the status quo, which it did, and this was a big reason for the Protestant Reformation, what then? Well, this was addressed with the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, quite simply, quite frankly. If you take the role of the overseer, of the pastor, at whatever level, if we're talking a pastor or we're talking about the pastor who presides over several pastors, which you might call a bishop traditionally, if you take that role and you say even that role will be held in check and accountable to the priesthood of all believers— who all alike have the Holy Spirit and can go directly to God through Jesus Christ, then you have more checks and balances. You have more safety against the potential for corruption. You're enlisting more people to this task of calling out unrepented of sin because it's not just civil authorities who can be in unrepented of sin and can be corrupt and can be wicked and could and can teach what doesn't accord with sound doctrine. It's also authorities in the church, particularly if a perverse alliance is formed between authorities in the civil space and authorities in the church space. So that's some of where this is coming from. In fact, that's quite a lot of where this is coming from, that it had to be formulated. And this has been true for all of church history, that you have a challenge to sound doctrine that arises, and the challenge is answered with shoring up after due deliberation and study of the scriptures, shoring up, okay, this is what we believe. And it's not that nobody believed it before the doctrine was formulated, but it's typically that, hey, we need to write it out and come together in assemblies or conferences or what have you, conventions, councils, yes, like the Council of Jerusalem in the book of Acts, we're going to come together, the leaders of the church are going to come together and debate this and deliberate it in light of the scriptures, in light of what we know to be true from the word of God. And here is our verdict. And what do you do when there's a competing claim on authority? That's still a pressing problem. But then we have an answer in that God presides and God brings consequences in his timing, in his manner of choosing on those who are unrepentant. Skipping on down though, under the heading, Medieval Views versus Protestant Understandings, Fesco writes, Medieval theologians believed that salvation came from God through the church in these simple terms. This sounds very similar to the way most Christians understand it. There are, however, significant differences between medieval and 
Protestant understandings of how God works through the church, the medieval church taught that God works exclusively through a select class of priests as they administered the seven sacraments of the church, baptism, the Eucharist, confirmation, penance, extreme unction, marriage, and holy orders. Protestants, on the other hand, believe that all people in the church are priests, or in the language of the 16th century reformer Martin Luther, the priesthood of all believers. What are the differences between these two views? In short, the medieval view rests on the teaching of church tradition, whereas the Protestant view grows out of scripture. (laughs) So that is to say, one is self-reinforcing based on the church saying, oh yes, this is definitely what it is. And believing that that's sufficient by the same conclusion, there's a kind of circular reasoning aspect to saying that we have the authority. Well, how do you know that you have the authority? Well, because we have the authority and we said that we have the authority. Ah, Okay, great. On the other hand, you have the Bible. That would be the Protestant view where we would say, "Um, but the Bible says this, right? The Bible says this here, and that's what we're going to go with. Medieval Christians believed that the church was part of a celestial hierarchy where everything in the heavens and earth had its place in a great chain of being. The great chain begins with God, then archangels and angels. This heavenly hierarchy finds its earthly parallel through the sacraments, those who are inspired by God to comprehend them and those initiated by them. God passes his knowledge and grace down the chain to the angels who in turn invest this information in the sacraments and those who administer the sacraments, priests, who then give them to the laity. Salvation chiefly comes through the sacraments and the priests who administer them. And the priests are a unique class of individual who have been gifted by God to contemplate the things of God. They are of a higher order than ordinary people who have no capacity for such sublime truth. This view of a hierarchy prevailed in the church through the Middle Ages until the 16th century, Protestant Reformation. Luther challenged this prevailing notion because he rejected the church's claims. He believed the church rested its idea of the unique priestly class on tradition rather than the authority of scripture. Luther instead believed that offering the sacrifice of the mass did not make one a priest, but rather anyone who had faith in Christ, our great high priest, was indeed a priest of God. In Luther's typical pithy manner, he claimed, quote, faith alone is the true priestly office, end quote. Luther's idea of the priesthood of all believers versus the priesthood of only a select few rests in the priestly office of Christ and in the believer's blessing to share in all that Christ is through union with him. Now, let's just pause right there for a moment and let's consider that on the one hand, you have roundabout 500 years ago, in the 16th century, this challenge being made to several practices that had become normative, several attitudes that had been common in the Roman Catholic Church in the West. You have a challenge being issued because monks and others like Luther were saying, hey, wait a second, we read the text you guys are referencing if you're referencing a text and you're playing very fast and loose. And why were some people playing fast and loose? They were playing fast and loose because they were regarded as experts and they weren't going to double check one another. There was a partiality being shown to one another and a partiality that in large part was concerned about, afraid of, 
incurring the displeasure or disapproval of those higher in the hierarchy. So tradition had been built up and was being reinforced by that same mechanism. Trust the experts, essentially, and don't you dare question any of this. And just to sprinkle in a little bit, we'll put some scripture references here and there. We'll make a passing reference, but then we don't actually expect anybody to go and read those relevant passages or any others to draw any other passages in to cross-examine some of the claims that are being made. Luther was not having it. And he saw the abuses in his time as being especially flagrant. And what, right? As a monk, as a person with some authority in the Roman Catholic Church, he was punching above his weight class. In hindsight, we think, oh yeah, Luther, he was this big deal, right? So it was him against the Pope, and he was every bit the match for Pope when he was speaking about these things and talking about these things and asking these questions. No, no, that's not correct. The Pope was regarded as the person who spoke for God on earth. Literally, the Pope was the penultimate priest in the Catholic Church and that everybody else was under his authority. But then when you look at the history, it also was a little bit more messy than that because at some points, this guy would back a certain candidate for Pope and this guy would back a different candidate for Pope. And then at some points, you had multiple people being Pope at the same time. And then it's like, oh, well, now we need to fight because you're an anti-Pope or you're not a real Pope. I'm a real Pope. And so they would fight because you can't have all these Popes. You can't have all these Papas, all these fathers, holy fathers. We need to have one holy father. And so now we got to fight and kill each other. And the Protestant Reformation really simplified this immensely in a lot of ways, but then the typical Roman Catholic line will be, no, it didn't, because it opened the door to a whole lot of subjectivism, a whole lot of your truth, my truth, our truth can be different than the actual truth type thinking. A lot of liberalism is said to be a direct result of this trend by critics of Protestantism. But then, hold on, not so fast, wait a second. Understand that <laughs> that first couple of lines in this section of J.V. Fesco's essay at the Gospel Coalition says, in these simple terms, that salvation comes from God through the church, in these simple terms, this sounds very similar to what most Christians understand. So that is to say, and I've been noting this, I've been remarking on this. This is very much my observation. We can be Protestants and think in very Roman Catholic ways because we're not actually studying the scripture and we're going right back to people being in various positions due to partiality and due to a certain favoritism. This person being the pastor means that if you're associated with that church and it's the cool church, you're going to score points. You're going to be popular and well thought of by the community, and there will be certain benefits that come along with being thought well of in the community. And can that, in a bad way, actually morph into just 
reinforcing, putting people in who are going to teach new traditions and get favor for themselves in a very similar way to how far too many church officers centuries ago in the Roman Catholic Church selected their church officers or empowered their teachers or empowered their priests? Do we have a very similar kind of mechanic setting up where you have big, big churches and you have big organizations and companies and corporations and industries that revolve around something similar to the selling of indulgences and the building up of cathedrals? Do you possibly have a variation on this because no temptation has seized us, but that which is common to man? Do you also possibly, quite probably, have in the absence of a great deal of biblical literacy, in the absence of a commitment to the authority of Scripture, even among professing Protestants, do you have a starting right back up where Rome left off in a lot of places? Only we don't have it as centralized. We've got lots of little pockets, lots of little compartments of this way of doing church and approaching the Christian life. Yes, as a matter of fact. And that's really concerning. It's really concerning. And it might be a lot more difficult to deal with and to address than it was in Martin Luther's day in some ways. Not that it was easy for him or for other Protestant reformers, because there was definitely a point very quickly during the Protestant Reformation in which the debate stopped. We're not having a discussion. We're not going to talk about this. You're just going to recant. You're going to give up on what you're saying and what you're teaching, or we will throw you out. We will cast you out. And then we may even bring you under civil magistrate penalties. We might even call you a heretic. We might even call you whatever we have to call you in order to arrest you, torture you, and put you to death ultimately. That's what the reformers were up against, like Luther. And there was a very real possibility that that was going to happen to him. It was very surprising that it didn't happen to him, actually. Very unusual. But in our day, when it's lots of little compartments, lots of little pockets of this kind of an attitude, and it's whatever is the biggest church in your area, your community, your region, and who is the prevailing pastor or preacher or teacher saying, this is the gospel, this is the Christian message, this is the way walk you in it. Where do you start? You know, you might have variations on this exact same kind of a mechanic where you try to speak up, you try to say, hey, wait a second, I'm not sure, I'm not sure this is correct. And very quickly you find yourself coming to the end of a discussion back and forth wherein you would bring the scriptures to bear, you find yourself very quickly being shown the door if you're not willing to just admit that you're wrong and bow to the authority of tradition. This is a difficult thing to address in our day. And actually, perhaps the only for sure thing that we really can address with it is our own personal views. So the priesthood of all believers, in some ways, has set us up for this being a much more fractured and fragmented type of a 
expression of this bad attitude than was typical under Roman Catholicism. But then on the other hand, it also gives us an escape route. Because at the end of the day, if you believe in the priesthood of all believers, you can at least say, I'm going to make sure my theology matches to the best of my abilities, the theology that is in scripture. I want my views to conform to scripture, not conform to the pattern of this world. You can at least do that. And if you have a household, if you have a wife and kids, you can say, hey, guys, this is what the Bible teaches. And you can teach that even if you're thrown out of a church or even if you're marginalized, even if you're pushed to the side or things are implied or insinuated about you that ah, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we're not going to kick this guy out, but you know, don't trust him, right? He's got some weird ideas. You can at bare minimum go back to the biblical text. And you know what? Maybe just maybe if we start with the premise that this really shouldn't be a tradition versus scripture thing. If you can start with that and you can insist that we're going to have a reasoned discourse back and forth, we're going to be Bereans and we're going to believe what is said about the Bereans would be a good aspirational model for us, that they were of a more noble character because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And they were doing that openly enough that it was obvious, you know, it wasn't just quietly, privately when nobody was looking so as to not offend. No, they were doing it very Openly, very honestly, well, okay, what about this? Okay, what what about this? Oh, okay, that's a good point. Moving on. That's how we should be, and in due time, that can have a good effect, even just at a small scale, in your local church, in your local community, among your local circle of fellow Christians. But it's not going to be easy in our context either, with our particular challenges, any more than it was under Luther's circumstances. Moving on, though, let's talk about one of the implications of the move away from the authority of Scripture and the move towards the autonomous individual, which you could say was contributed to by some people taking Protestant arguments and then stripping all respect for God, all respect for the scriptures and the authority of scriptures from those type of arguments around about five centuries ago. Let's talk about a post, a piece, a write-up over at theblaze.com by Blaze TV staff, September 21st. LGBTQ activists are attempting to redefine infertility so that same-sex couples get medical coverage for surrogacy and IVF, that is in vitro fertilization. Ali Beth Stuckey, has a guest on in Katie Faust, founder and director of Them Before Us, to discuss this question. What would somebody want to accomplish by redefining infertility? How is that even a thing? When everything's being redefined, everything is up in the air, what does the meaning of is mean? Why infertility now? I'll play for you cut one of these two women discussing this on Ali Beth Stuckey's Relatable podcast. Here it is, cut one, and then I'll have some thoughts. 
I want to kind of get into specifically what I get the most pushback on and just ask some questions that I receive a lot when it comes to my Christian conservative audience, those pro-life people who love babies and they want to have children. They want their friends to have children. And so their kind of mentality so far has been pretty much any means possible. So they might agree with us, agree with you when you say, Children deserve a mother and father. Yes, they are against two men or two women using a third party, all of that. They're on board with you when it comes to that. But what I receive a lot is, but, and you kind of just answered this, but I want you more specifically to talk about it, but what if I want a child? And don't talk about this is what I hear unless you've walked through infertility. This is nuanced. This is gray. It's not so binary. It's not so black and white. It's not right or wrong. You know, I even got this message saying, you know, God deals with us all relationally and individually. You can't say that God hasn't called someone to be a surrogate or use a surrogate or use IVF. Or I get, well, my children were born from IVF. And so you're, you know, basically telling me I'm a bad mom. And so to me, it's a conflation of desire and God's will. But like, how how do you respond to that? I'm talking about the heterosexual Christian couple who feels that they were called by God to use some of these technologies. And they say, because I desire this so strongly, God must have given me this desire and he gave me these scientific means by which I can have a child. How dare you? How dare you even question that? What's your response? I don't want to question you and I don't want to wreck the relationship. Do you understand, though, that protecting children is an absolute imperative for every Christian? We don't get to decide whether or not we crusade on their behalf. It is literally a mandate. And we are all in serious, serious jeopardy if we cause a little one to stumble. And I don't, I can't understand people that are going through infertility. My friends who experience it would say, Katie, it's kind of like having the worst breakup you've ever experienced, but that just happens month after month after month. And some of those friends have a very hard time focusing on anything else because their longing to be a mom is so strong and it's so good. It's so good to long to be a mom. The challenge for people dealing with infertility or any of these other legitimate challenges that adults experience is what you cannot do is allow your longing and your loss to be transferred onto the shoulders of a child. That is the no-go zone for Christians. So talk about the couple that says, well, you know, I want to use IVF. And the truth is that there are ways to use IVF that don't violate the rights of children. And I have met people that have done it but they have fought against the industry and their own doctor at every step of the way. If they are never going to discard any embryo, if they're gonna implant every single one, if they're not gonna freeze any or have surplus or excess or whatever it is, that's a much more expensive process. And many doctors won't do it because it's going to damage their success rates and their implantation rates. So you can try to use these technologies in a way that don't violate any child's right to life or any child's right to their mother and father. And you will be, you will be traveling that road alone. The reality is that fertility companies are banking on you creating multiple embryos, storing, freezing, discarding, selecting. And we know that by the numbers, only about 7% of children created through IVF are going to be born alive, right? In our mind, we think, well, IVF is just about babies, but it's not. It's about on-demand designer babies that you can discard if you need to. And that's how the industry 
sees it. And for those of you guys who are pro-lifers who suddenly went, wait a second, what are you talking about? Are you serious? Yes, right after Dobbs passed, what did we have? We had fertility clinics in red states absolutely panicking over the fact that that state might define life as being as beginning at conception because it would wreck their business model. They spend quite a lot of time grading and selecting and discarding and freezing embryos um, after they have developed for a couple days, you know, up to a week. And if they are not allowed to dispose of that embryonic life, they can't do business in a red state. So by the numbers, the baby making industry, the fertility industry, takes more embryonic life per year than the baby taking industry, the abortion industry. So first of all, we need to understand that if you're participating, if you're choosing to go the IVF route, you will be the vast minority of people who are seeking to do it without violating the rights of children. So let's talk a little bit about, well, what about surrogacy? Like maybe God has called me to be a surrogate or maybe God has said we can use a surrogate. So it's very interesting to me. We've had a couple um, celebrities in the last few weeks that have talked about their surrogate pregnancy. One of them is Khloe Kardashian. And she, um, I, you know, honestly good for her because what she said is, I'm having a really hard time bonding with my surrogate born son. Like, I just don't feel close to him. I feel guilty that I took him away from his birth mother right at the minute that he was born. And I am struggling to connect to him. And I think that people looked at that and said, well, that makes sense. You know, that makes sense. Like the baby was not growing inside of you. And we can empathize and understand where Khloe Kardashian is coming from. I would now like people to look at things from the child's perspective. Chloe has dozens of other relationships, dozens of other close relationships, people that she's connected to that love her. And she was struggling to connect with this one person. So now think of it from the child's perspective. They have one relationship. The only not just person, the only thing that they know is their birth mother, the woman within whose womb they are growing inside. And do you think that you can then take the child away from that only person, the one relationship they have, and the child won't mourn, right? And then we saw it again with Chrissy Teigen, Teigen, forgive me, like, I don't know, I've read it, haven't heard it a whole lot. But, you know, she talked about how she just welcomed another child through surrogacy. And because why she had, and she was afraid to, right? Because she had just experienced a really devastating pregnancy loss. And it affected her so much that she wasn't sure if she could even try to get pregnant again. Why did it affect her? Why was she so devastated over a baby that she only gestated for, I think like 24 weeks? Because she was already attached to that child because she already loved that child, because she already had a relationship with that child, even though she had dozens of other relationships with other adults. Okay. And let's just stop right there. There's a lot more to this back and forth discussion between Allie Beth Stuckey and Katie Faust that you can watch and listen to. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode, my podcast episode. But just as much as you heard right there, one clarification, <laughs> um, Chrissy Teigen a couple of years ago, said this was a miscarriage and it was heartbreaking. It was devastating. Actually, I think this was three years ago, thereabouts at this point. But here about a year ago, this time, September 16th of last year, news broke that, well, actually it wasn't a miscarriage. Actually, it was an abortion. And it was supposedly an abortion, and I don't know the details. 
it was supposedly an abortion to save Chrissy Teigen's life. And the doctors were telling her this baby boy can't survive and you're going to die. You're going to lose your life if you continue on with the pregnancy. And so she had an abortion and they told the world that this was a miscarriage, not an abortion. But then here about a year ago, she said, no, actually it was an abortion, not a miscarriage. But this is why it's so bad that the Republicans got these Supreme Court nominees into a position to overturn Roe v. Wade, because if abortion were illegal, then I would have died. Never mind what the stats are as to how few babies are saved based on a strict definition of the woman is going to die if she doesn't get an abortion. Never mind the fallibility of doctors who can say, oh yeah, this baby is not viable and you're going to die if we don't get an abortion. And this is the slippery slope, and there are slippery slopes always around here, because essentially, if you redefine the viability of the child based on broad criteria, very subjective criteria, you can say this baby's not viable if you just decide you don't want the baby anymore. Not to say that was Chrissy Teigen's case, but that's what a lot of people have rationalized abortion based on. Most people have rationalized that as pertains to the child, the child not being wanted along very similar lines to what was popularized by Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, you just not wanting this child means that this child would grow up in a home where the child was not loved, where the child was not properly cared for. And then in due time, that child would become an adult and get into crime and be poor and be perhaps mentally ill, immoral, but then what is morality? So let's downplay that one. They'll get into all kinds of trouble. Little babies who aren't wanted will grow up to be adults who aren't wanted. So there's that, right? There's that issue. And then besides that, there's also the issue of what about a homosexual couple who cannot, cannot produce a child through their union? A man and a man cannot make a baby. A woman and a woman cannot make a baby unless... We're talking about in vitro fertilization or we're talking about surrogacy, but then that's not really their child. And somebody says, well, you know, it's kind of the same thing as adoption, but then it's not as Katie Faust is pointing out ironic last name Faust, since a lot of this is just a deal with the devil. And a lot of this is all about what do I want, right? I want to have a child. Okay. That's great. But then we also have a lot of biblical reference material that we can draw in and at least in that clip that I just played for you from this interview back and forth, what do we not hear? We don't hear any scripture. And that's not to say that there's no scripture to support the concerns or the arguments one way or the other. That's not to say that. And it's not to say that they're not employing scripture elsewhere in the interview. But that clip there, no biblical argument, no argument from the authority of scripture it's all just, well, hey, think about the child, right? How's that child going to bond with a mother who is not his or her birth mother? Now, think of the child. Also, an interesting point to bring up with regards to how many embryos are frozen. You know, conception happens, but if you define life as beginning at conception, what does that do to the IVF industry? What does that do to those who are trying to offer couples surrogacy. If the woman is infertile, 
in a married couple, a heterosexual married couple, this lab over here specializes in making it possible for the couple to have a biological child. But then, hey, wait a second, this is really expensive. And also, is there perhaps a discontentedness towards God, which could be informed better by a close reading of 1 Samuel chapter 1? Here I'm going to say some feather-ruffling things about what we find in Scripture, which might be a reason for some people to shy away from looking to the Scriptures for arguments on this issue. One, it was very typical, it was very common in the Old Testament, in the cultural context of the Old Testament, it was very common for a infertile woman to give to her husband, her handmaiden, to be a surrogate. So this happens in the case of Abram and Sarai, where Abram sleeps with Hagar, who is this Egyptian maidservant of Sarai's, and this is Sarai's idea Hagar gets pregnant by Abram, and they have a son named Ishmael. See also the Ishmaelites, see also who most Arabs, most Muslims regard as their ancestors' root. But that kind of surrogacy, you will not hear Christians arguing for. And yet, aren't the same kinds of arguments going to be made in the case of that kind of surrogacy? Well, this couple just really wants a child. They can't have a child. They just really feel like God wants them to have a child. In the case of Abraham and Sarai, God had literally promised that he would make of their descendants, their offspring, a great nation. And yet, they're looking at what's the possibility of that when they're old and they're well past the years where people, women in particular, get pregnant, have child. The same kinds of arguments were being employed, and how did that age? Now, speaking personally, if God didn't intervene, we know that this is not a one-to-one ratio. God does not intervene with regards to Abram taking Hagar and getting her pregnant. God does not intervene in the same way God does intervene when Sarai is taken into the house of this or that king because her husband said, tell people that you're my sister. We're going into this land. You're a very beautiful woman, and they're going to want to take you from me and kill me if they know that I'm your husband, you're my wife. Someone will want to kill me and take you and make you available again so that you're not married to me, so that you can be given to this or that powerful man in the territory. God intervenes in that case and comes to the Pharaoh, comes to the king and says, don't touch that woman or you're a dead man. God does no such thing in the case of Hagar and Abram, which is very curious, very, very curious. So interestingly enough, if we're making entirely pragmatic arguments here and we're not going to go to scripture, the only thing that would actually exclude the possibility of doing what Abram and Sarai did to solve this problem would be to appeal to tradition, to appeal to tradition and say, oh no, that's not okay. Well, how do you know that it's not okay? If all we're doing, we're just locked in arguing back and forth in a autonomous individual sense, talking about our feelings, talking about now the child's feelings as well. If all we're doing is arguing back and forth about 
this person's tradition and that other person's tradition, then before we know it, it's anything goes. And after a fashion, we're right back where the Roman Catholic Church left off prior to the Protestant Reformation saying, no, 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 you have to go to the authority of Scripture to make the arguments you're going to make, to make the claims that you're going to make. If you're going to make a claim on the morality or the immorality of one course or the other. And if it's all the same and you can just make a decision for yourself, okay, you are explaining why you've made the choice to not pursue in vitro fertilization. You're making the argument for why you personally wouldn't get a surrogate to carry to term a implanted egg that's been fertilized. You personally are explaining your private reasons why you wouldn't choose to get an abortion, but you need to let everybody else make that choice too. Well, what's that predicated on? Allow me to suggest and put forward that a bastardized version, no pun intended, given the context of what we're talking about, a bastardized version of the priesthood of all believers is at issue here. What makes the priesthood of all believers work is we're all competent to read the scripture and by the power of the Holy Spirit to interpret and read towards the end of applying scripture. But then there has to be some kind of a check and balance on the autonomous individual, the private individual conscience saying scripture is now subject to my interpretation. There has to be a community of believers discussing these things and going back and forth. And at a, at a certain point, you have to say, okay, if it's not 100% clear that the Bible rules this out and mandates this, it requires this other thing, because that by extension means that God requires this, this is how we know the mind of God, then we'll say, okay, use your best judgment and you're free to do what seems best to you. But in the case of this topic of in vitro fertilization, fertility treatments, it is interesting to recognize that the life-making, the baby-making industry doesn't necessarily want to set up shop in Republican states where legislation may say that a human life begins at conception and therefore anything which without just cause terminates the life of or jeopardizes the life of a human being is illegal. For all the same reasons that abortion is legal, you also can't go hatching some infinite number of babies in test tubes, and then if nobody wants them, you just terminate them, because that's murder then. We're right back where we started, and it's not that you dodge that question by talking about your feelings, nor do you dodge that question by appealing to tradition. You know, again, biblical tradition would say if Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and those wives of Jacob gave their handmaidens also to Jacob because they were trying to compete for who could have the most children. And so Leah and Rachel both are getting children by their maidservants. Those children are considered kind of Rachel and Leah's children if their handmaidens were the ones who became pregnant, carried to term, gave birth. We look at that with horror and disgust, but then it's really surrogacy. That is really old school surrogacy. And honestly, if God didn't intervene to say, no, you can't do that, well then 
We must have liberty to do it, as I reason. On the other hand, I would absolutely support a blanket condemnation of abortion based on life beginning at conception, because otherwise it's too easy for those who want to terminate the life of unborn children, preborn children, it's too easy for them to take every slippery slope and play every angle to excuse murder. And that's really what's at issue there is, is it murder or isn't it? When we're talking about surrogacy, you can make all of the personal arguments, the emotional appeals that you want to, and those can be valid to a point, to a certain extent. But if God didn't say thou shalt not, or if there's not a category of thou shalt not that this belongs in properly, well, then you're just giving your opinion. You're being somewhat arbitrary. If you impose that opinion on other people, you can say, I really don't want you to do it. It bothers me. And let's talk about this. Okay, fine. But if it's not murder, what's our argument? What's our play here? It's all just pragmatism. I'm sorry. I don't have time for that. Either abortion is murder and therefore it should be illegal like every other kind of murder, or you're basically saying some categories of people are life unworthy of life. And then we're right back where we were about a century ago with the eugenicists who were debating, should we round up all of the germplasm of society as we see it and gas them? I don't want to go back to that. That's a terrifying chapter in the history of Western civilization. And there were people here in the U.S. who were debating it, who were arguing for it. They were claiming with the utmost urgency, we need that here to solve the ills of society. We need the government to forcibly sterilize people and euthanize people. And I'm not talking about just the very young and the very old. I'm talking about everybody in between who would be regarded as insane or terminally ill or even just chronically ill or of low intelligence, low class. The people we regard as trash. Yeah, we should just round them all up and make sure that they at least can't ever have children, but then what's better possibly in some people's minds. And that mindset, what's better is these people shouldn't be alive just like they shouldn't be allowed to reproduce. But the flip side is if you say, well, we want there to be surrogacy because we love there being children. The flip side is, okay, well, if you're not appealing to scripture as your basis for making claims on what is moral and what is not moral, what is good and what is evil, then what's your argument against a homosexual couple going for surrogacy as the solution to their inherent problem of infertility? What's your objection to a transgendered person saying, oh, I am a woman, but I can't have children on my own because I'm actually a man? You know, what's your argument there if it's not that God said this is an abomination? It's just everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. And to a certain point, at a certain point, it's fine to say, okay, do what seems best to you. But then you need to know what that point is and where is past that point when it becomes lawlessness and not actually liberty. When is it sin? Well, it's sin when God says thou shalt not. If God didn't say thou shalt not, well, then you're free to and then enter the pragmatic type arguments. But then I think that's one of the big things about this is if we're talking about homosexual couples and transgendered people who are insisting they want to have babies, the only real argument to be made against that that I care about is whether this is 
good or evil. And the only way I know that for sure, for sure, is whether God has said either categorically this is evil or by reasonable extension from something else that's evil, this is evil. And somebody will say with regards to surrogacy that, well, hey, wait a second. What Abram did with Hagar, what Jacob did with the maidservants of Rachel and Leah, that was adultery, right? Abram was married to Sarai, not to Hagar. That was adultery. He cheated on her. What Jacob did with the maidservants of Rachel and Leah, that was adultery. He wasn't married to them. In fact, for that matter, he should have just stopped with Leah. He married Leah and that was it. Okay, well, wait a second though. If God didn't say that, and if there are quite a lot of odd incongruities to taking that view that this is adultery on the one hand, just like it is on the other hand, then aren't we right back to treating gender and sexuality as an arbitrary thing? Don't we get ourselves put on the path to seeing these things as arbitrary and deciding them based on public opinion and appealing to tradition in a very Roman Catholic way? Aren't we right back where we started if you don't have book, chapter, and verse where God says, thou shalt not? I would say yes. I would say definitively yes. From my vantage point, looking at the biblical text, yes, God does give authority to civil magistrates, but then we recognize intuitively that there's something wrong and perverse and wicked if a civil magistrate starts to bless and to reward and to affirm and to encourage and to defend what is evil and to punish those who object, even just privately trying to reason with someone, calling them out of a lifestyle that God says is an abomination to him. If a civil government says, thou shalt not protest abortion or try to talk people out of getting an abortion outside of a clinic, thou shalt not make somebody seeking an abortion feel uncomfortable or thou shalt not cause them to have second thoughts or to be upset that you're trying to talk them out of it. Thou shalt not decline to bake a cake or take photographs of a wedding because thou wouldst offend the gay couple. We're already saying that the civil magistrate can get it wrong. And we're already saying too, if this has been normative now for several years that gay marriage so cold is every bit as legal and to be affirmed and maybe even more so affirmed in many circles due to a ruling, a very flawed ruling of the Supreme Court and lots of striking down of ballot measures passed by the people of various states to put in constitutional amendments with regards to marriage, being between one man and one woman, or between a man and a woman, only heterosexual marriage, when we recognize that, okay, several years have passed since that, and then before last summer where Roe v. Wade was overturned, we had 50 years of precedent of abortion being so-called the law of the land, legalized abortion being the law of the land due to Another flawed, terribly, terribly flawed Supreme Court ruling. We recognize that the civil magistrate and tradition and popular opinion are not the be-all, end-all. And that actually, as a matter of fact, in a lot of ways, we're right back where the Roman Catholic Church and Western Europe found itself in Luther's time. Just substitute the Supreme Court for some church council. Substitute the president of the United States for some pope. Substitute a majority opinion over 
years or decades, and so-called conservatives like David French saying, well, see, this has been the way that it's been for so many years now, and people have gotten used to it. We don't want to upset people. That would be a bad testimony. That wouldn't be loving our neighbor well, so let's just leave it the way that it is. Substitute all that for the kinds of appeals to tradition that were typical in Luther's day to support various abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, bad doctrine being taught, bad practices being prescribed, and look at a lot of the same core fundamentals where the attitude being one or the other, when the person who's going to be appealing to the authority of Scripture objects and they say, hey, this is not good, this is evil, this is a bad thing that's being done, they're met with very similar kinds of rejection, ostracization, hostility, sidelining. It's very uncomfortable. But then what is that about? It's at root a refusal to be reformed, but that is to say a refusal to repent, to confess that we do have sin and maybe our sin lies along these lines that we invalidate the commands of God and prefer instead the traditions of men, which are arbitrary. We prefer the authority of man and by extension, doing what's right in our own eyes and by extension, lawlessness as a principle. We prefer that over God's authority. Ultimately, you say those kinds of things and people will get upset because the emperor has no clothes. And this is what's at root in the conflict between those who champion abortion on demand for any reason or no reason at all, and those who say, no, abortion is murder and it should be outlawed across the board. This is what's at issue on the one hand for those who are saying gay marriage is this great, beautiful thing and now transgenderism needs to be celebrated and we need to take children away from parents to teach them how to be homosexual and transgendered on the one hand. And on the other hand, those who say, absolutely not. I'm pulling my kid out. We're going to homeschool. On the one hand, you have those who are saying, I get to do whatever I want. Whatever I want, that's the most important thing. On the other hand, you have people saying, whatever God wants, that's the most important thing. But then we have to make sure that the kinds of arguments that we're making for doing the right thing are not the kinds of arguments that are just a variation on people doing the lawless thing. Hey, we're going to do the good thing for the wrong reasons, namely just because this is what we want. So we're going to make the exact same kind of argument because we're actually embarrassed about the biblical text. We're embarrassed of God. Let it not be said of us that we're embarrassed of God. We're embarrassed of his word. We feel like it hasn't aged particularly well. You know what? Our making decisions on this paradigm that we just do whatever seems good in our own eyes, that's not aging particularly well. Given the choice, I will go with God. I'm going to prefer the authority of scripture. And maybe I don't always understand it, and I'm not supposed to understand it in a vacuum all by myself. It's not subject to my own private interpretation, but I want to be honest. If I'm looking at it and I'm saying, okay, well, it looks like it's this. And if somebody says, well, no, it's not that, and you better be quiet. I say, well, (laughs) I don't think that's how this works either. You know, it might not be subject to my own private interpretation, but it's certainly not beyond the pale that I would interpret it privately because see also the priesthood of all believers. And the priesthood of all believers is part of what checks abuses like those perpetrated by Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Abuses of a negligent kind on the one hand and an active corruption kind in the case of his two sons. In closing, what we need to figure out is how do we 
make the right kinds of arguments for the right reasons, how do we rejoice with the truth and call others to likewise? That's what we need to figure out. How do we get our minds right? Individually, start there. And once you've taken the plank out of your own eye, then you see clearly to help your brother with a speck in his. Start there. One final thought on this back and forth between Allie Beth Stuckey and Katie Faust. Couples who are infertile should prefer, in my view, adoption. Adopt children who don't have a mom and a dad. Do that. And don't make arguments about, oh, this is going to be harder to bond and that's going to be easier to bond with the child. No, no. Go for adoption. Do that. Let's not make bad arguments that set us up on slippery slopes to basically doing nothing about the mass murder of unborn children, preborn children. Don't make the kinds of arguments in support of IVF and surrogacy, which stand in the way of outlawing the murder of innocent children in our country. Please don't. But if you want to have a child, if you want to have children, by all means, couples, if you're infertile, adopt. Adopt children who don't have a home. That's what you should do. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.